Burning Books with Eric Beck-Rubin. Hello, and welcome to episode 21 of Burning Books, a podcast dedicated to discussing, celebrating, exploring, etc. Great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposites of all those things. After a longer than normal break between episodes, thank you for your patience, we are back. And today, we're going to talk about Arthur Kessler's iconic 1940 novel, Darkness at Noon. Kessler, a polyglot, did not write this novel in his mother tongue, Hungarian, but in one of his many second languages, German, and it was translated into English by Daphne Hardy. This is an excellent book. Who doesn't judge a book by its cover? Let he or she who has not sinned cast the first stone. John 8, 7. The cover of the Scribner edition of Darkness at Noon is a sickness. From the black, white, and red color scheme, to the zigzaggy design, to the choice of font, and the one small illustrative element, a man imprisoned in what seems like a shrinking bubble. That prisoner on the cover stands for Rubishov, the central character of Darkness at Noon, But before we get to Rubishov's predicament and the seemingly shrinking bubble of his life, or what remains of it, I wish to offer a backdrop. While I admit I bought this book because of its snappy cover, as well as the cachet attached to the author's name, I also knew vaguely about the subject of the book, the Moscow show trials of the 1930s. This solidified the novel in my mind as a worthy book, which more or less guaranteed that I wouldn't be reading it anytime soon. I don't do worthy, at least not if I can help it. After all, worthiness leads people like me to read The Tin Drum, which just listened to episode two. So while the book's handsome spine haunted my bookshelf, and I read the first paragraph a number of times, it was not really threatening to be properly and entirely consumed. Anytime I thought of actually dedicating myself to reading Darkness at Noon, a part of my mind asked, is today really the day I want to read more about the Moscow show trials? The answer to that question was always, No, no, it's not, not today. But on account of a memorial design project that I've gotten involved with regarding the legacy of communism, I decided it was time to give the novel a chance. By this point, I knew the first paragraph by heart. Rubishov shoved into a cell, the door slamming shut behind him, but I quickly found the plot going backwards in time to the arrest of Rubishov, an arrest which the main character himself had been dreaming about for years, and which takes place exactly as prefigured. Here's how the dream goes. Rubishov, a high-ranking officer in the reigning military-political order, is asleep in his apartment. He seems to hear the sound of knocking at the door, and when he wakes, he finds three people standing over him. There's the building's superintendent, Vasily, and two officers. One officer is older, which means the other one is younger. And as always seems to be the case, it's the younger one who is more aggressive, nervous, and frightening. The three of them stood by Rubishov's bed, the young man with his pistol in hand, the old man holding himself stiffly as though standing to attention. Vasily stood a few steps behind them, leaning against the wall. Rubishov was still drying the sweat from the back of his head. He looked at them short-sightedly with sleepy eyes. Citizen Rubishov, Nicholas Salmanovich, we arrest you in the name of the law. Rubishov felt for his glasses under the pillow and propped himself up a bit. Now that he had his glasses on, 
His eyes had the expression which Vasily and the elder official knew from old photographs and color prints. The elder official stood more stiffly to attention. The young one, who had grown up under new heroes, went a step closer to the bed. All three saw that he was about to say or do something brutal to hide his awkwardness. Questions are asked, but not answered. After all, how could one possibly respond to Rubishov's demands for an explanation? You're being imprisoned because... Kafka. The opening section of the novel, and every section thereafter, begins with an epigraph. In this case, it's... Nobody can rule guiltlessly. A quote attributed to Saint-Just, who was one of the many who proclaimed, and was eventually swallowed by, the French Revolution. Goethe has a similar line, if you can call it a line. He wrote, He who acts is always without a conscience. Combined, the two aphorisms give a picture of the idea that is systematically explored in the first part of Darkness at Noon. In short, thinking about what you do is bound to hurt you. Therefore, don't think, just do. This applies to the superintendent who lets the soldiers in, despite having a pretty good idea of what they're doing there and what will happen next for Rubishov. It applies to the older soldier, who has similar foreknowledge. And it applies to the younger soldier, who is threatening, in large part, because he is not constrained by self-consciousness. He's the kind to pull the trigger without thinking twice. Or even once. As it turns out, Saint-Just's words, Nobody can rule guiltlessly, also apply to Rubishov. During the first part of the book, which Rubishov spends mostly alone in his cell, he frequently melts into his own memories. And those memories show that, when he was on the outside, a party leader with significant power, he was doing the non-thinking, the guilty ruling. And as he replays a number of incidents in his mind, it begins to occur to him that, in the position of ruler, he wasn't even aware of being unthinking, which is one of the more frightening aspects of holding power. Rubishov's reflections revolve around three incidents. One is to do with a young local party leader who followed his mind, rather than the party line. Another, Rubishov's personal secretary, who had to be sacrificed for Rubishov's safety. And a third is about a refugee dock worker who managed to gain a following, too much of a following, for the party's liking. In each case, Rubishov seals fates, which doesn't even sound like a euphemism, although it's meant to be. In his worldview, it's the party above all, and Rubishov is merely a more sophisticated version of the young soldier who looms above his bed at the beginning of the book. Because the reader gets to know that Rubishov is clever, humorous, imaginative, i.e. a human being, it's especially devastating to know that he, too, acted like a machine. Indeed, it's the destruction of this machine, mainly by stripping it apart and showing that at its core it's merely a human being, that constitutes the main theme and plot of the ensuing chapters. Darkness at Noon is divided into four parts. A first hearing, second hearing, third hearing, and a fourth part called the grammatical fiction, which is what Rubishov calls the self. More specifically, the idea that there is an I that exists within the party's worldview. The party, of course, favoring the first-person plural, we. A little more on that later. The three hearings take place, for the most part, in Rubishov's head, but occasionally, reality does intrude. As there were two soldiers hovering above Rubishov's bed at the beginning of the novel, there are two interrogators who control the so-called hearings in the prison. There is an older one, Ivanov, which means there is also a younger one, a man from the so-called new generation, named Gletkin. Given his seniority, Ivanov is in charge, at least 
to begin with. He reveals to Rubishov that the charge against him is conspiracy to assassinate the party leader, who goes by the name Number One. Ivanov, Rubishov, the reader, even the cynical Gletkin know that this charge is ridiculous, but that's hardly the point. The question for the two interrogators is how it's going to get resolved. In actual fact, it is not yet decided whether your case should belong to category A or category P. You know the terms? Rubishov nodded. He knew them. You begin to understand, said Ivanov. A means administrative case. P means public trial. The great majority of political cases are tried administratively. That is to say, those who would be no good in a public trial. If you fall into category A, you will be removed from my authority. The trial by the administrative board is secret and, as you know, somewhat summary. There is no opportunity for confrontations and that sort of thing. Ivanov suggests that Rubishov partially confess to the charges, pleading that he had incomplete knowledge of the plan to assassinate the leader. Ivanov concedes it sounds incredibly risky, knowing the whims of the system, but it might work for Rubishov. If he pleads guilty, the case will go to administrative trial, and it's possible he might only get 20 years in a gulag, which could eventually be reduced. 20 years in a gulag. That's better than a firing squad, though, right? Rubishov doesn't think so. Confess to a crime he didn't commit? He would never. At least, so he says in the first hearing. But as the not-at-all-figurative noose tightens around Rubishov's neck, this cynical man of the world, revolutionary leader, and senior party member becomes scared, then terrified. And to watch a cynical person become terrified, to engage with a world he had once dismissed as meaningless, is a frightening experience for the reader, who watches as the character's icy veneer is stripped away, exposing the writhing circuitry beneath. One of the more evocative scenes in this vein describes the change in tone that occurs throughout the prison ward on the night that executions take place, something that was perhaps based on Kessler's own experiences. Rubishov had never witnessed an execution, except nearly his own, but that had been during the Civil War. He could not well picture to himself how the same thing looked in normal circumstances, as part of an orderly routine. He knew vaguely that the executions were carried out at night in the cellars, and that the delinquent was killed by a bullet in the neck. But the details of it he did not know. In the party, death was no mystery. It had no romantic aspect. It was a logical consequence, a factor with which one reckoned and which bore rather an abstract character. Also, death was rarely spoken of, and the word execution was hardly ever used. The customary expression was physical liquidation. The words physical liquidation, again, evoked only one concrete idea, the cessation of political activity. The act of dying in itself was a technical detail, with no claim to interest. Death as a factor in a logical equation had lost any intimate bodily feature. Rubishov stared into the darkness through his pince-nez. Had the proceedings already started, or was it still to come? He had taken off shoes and socks, his bare feet at the other end of the blanket stuck up palely in the darkness. The silence became even more unnatural. It was not the usual comforting absence of noise. It was a silence which had swallowed all sound and smothered it. A silence vibrating like a taut drumskin. Rubishov stared at his bare feet and slowly moved the toes. It looked grotesque and uncanny, as though the white feet led a life of their own. He was conscious of his own body with unusual intensity. 
felt the lukewarm touch of the blanket on his legs and the pressure of his hand under his neck. Where did the physical liquidation take place? He had the vague idea that it must take place below, under the stairs which led down, beyond the barber's room. He smelled the leather of Gletkin's revolver belt and heard the crackling of his uniform. What did he say to his victim? Stand with your face to the wall? Did he add, please? Or did he say, don't be afraid, it won't hurt? Perhaps he shot without any warning, from behind, while they were walking along, but the victim would be constantly turning his head round. Perhaps he hid the revolver in his sleeve, as the dentist hides his forceps. Perhaps others were also present. How did they look? Did the man fall forwards or backwards? Did he call out? Perhaps it was necessary to put a second bullet in him to finish him off. A moment later, Rubishov looks through the spy hole of his cell and sees Bogrov, formerly commander of the Eastern Fleet of the Navy, a massive, powerful, unbreakable man. Right now, though, Bogrov is not looking so good. Two dimly lit figures had walked past, both in uniform, big and indistinct, dragging between them a third, whom they held under the arms. The middle figure hung slack, stretched out at length, face turned to the ground, belly arched downwards. The legs trailed after, the shoes skated along on the toes, producing the squealing sound which Rubishov had heard from the distance. Whitish strands of hair hung over the face turned towards the tiles, with mouth wide open. Drops of sweat clung to it. Out of the mouth, spittle ran thinly down the chin. Is the procession staged to persuade Rubishov to confess? Does it matter? If they can break the rock cliff that is Bogrov, what can they do to the pince wearing Rubishov? Rubishov sat up and leaned his forehead against the wall. He was afraid he was going to be sick again. Those who listened to episode four of the podcast, where I recounted the pain of reading Jeanette Winterson's Sexing the Cherry, may remember that, like Darkness at Noon, Winterson's novel also started with an epigraph, actually a pair of them. But whereas that book elucidated on the ideas as if they were guidelines for a writing assignment, and the novel came off reading more like an essay than a work of fiction, Darkness at Noon offers a masterclass in how to put ideas into narrative form. How does Kessler do it? Well, first, by creating a protagonist whose cleverness, stubbornness, and senses of humor, irony, and regret engender empathy in the reader. Equally, and perhaps more importantly, the world Rubishov inhabits in his tiny cell is, despite being tightly confined in a physical sense, in fact, wonderfully and vividly expansive. Consider, for example, the following scene. Rubishov heard the sound of several people marching down the corridor in step. His first thought was, now the beating up will start. He stopped in the middle of the cell, listening, his chin pushed forward. The marching steps came to a halt before one of the neighboring cells. A low command was heard. The keys jangled. Then there was silence. Rubishov stood stiffly between the bed and the bucket, held his breath, and waited for the first scream. He remembered that the first scream in which terror still predominated over physical pain, was usually the worst. What followed was already more bearable. One got used to it, and after a time, one could even draw conclusions on the method of torture from the tone and rhythm of the screams. Towards the end, most people behaved in the same way. However different they were in temperament and voice, the screams became weaker, changed over into whining and choking. Usually the door would slam soon after. The keys would jangle again, and the first scream of the next victim often came even before they had touched him, at the mere sight of the men in the doorway. 
Rubishov stood in the middle of his cell and waited for the first scream. He rubbed his glasses on his sleeve and said to himself that he would not scream this time either, whatever happened to him. He repeated this sentence as if praying with a rosary. He stood and waited. The scream still did not come. Then he heard a faint clanging. A voice murmured something. The cell door slammed. The footsteps moved to the next cell. Rubishov went to the spy hole and looked into the corridor. The men stopped nearly opposite his cell at number 407. There was the old warder with two orderlies dragging a tub of tea, a third carrying a basket with slices of black bread, and two uniformed officials with pistols. There was not beating up. They were bringing breakfast. This excerpt describes a running storyline in the book, a world being turned upside down. There is, at the beginning, the dream of an arrest that becomes reality. There is the imprisonment that precedes trial. Now there is the threat of a beating that is turned into the gift of breakfast. In time, these inversions become paradoxes, and catch-22s abound, 21 years before Joseph Heller coined the term. What do you want? the warder asked, in his usual surly tone. Cigarettes to be fetched for me from the canteen, said Rubishov. Have you got prison vouchers? My money was taken from me on my arrival, said Rubishov. Then you must wait until it has been changed for vouchers. How long will that take in this model establishment of yours? asked Rubishov. You can write a letter of complaint, said the old man. You know quite well that I have neither paper nor pencil, said Rubishov. To buy writing materials, you have to have vouchers, said the warder. In Kessler's novel, the author's wit piques the reader's curiosity. The scenes do not proceed as arguments, as was the case in Winterson, but as explorations. This leads me to contest a characterization by the sometimes novelist and more often critic Francine Prose that Darkness at Noon, like Brave New World, but somehow not like Catcher in the Rye, is a book for adolescent boys. When I first encountered this argument, it put a momentary shadow on Kessler's novel. Is it just a book for teenage boys? Considering this led me back to my quarrel with Winterson, which can be extended to Brave New World and, while I'm at it, 1984. Those latter novels consider their themes in an almost catechistic way. They proceeded through their worlds as if they were already pieces of required reading. There's no flesh on those novels. The characters are not real. The plot presents nothing that is unexpected. They're just trips around very dry patches of land. While Darkness at Noon cannot be called an incidentally philosophical novel, it has all the qualities of an excellent novel before it's an intellectual exploration of a historical problem. When it was published, George Orwell found it extraordinary for penetrating a world where one is imprisoned, not for what one does, but for what one is, or, more exactly, what one is suspected of being. But this is what you get coming away from the book, not going into it. Even the quasi-Freudian explorations of the possible existence of an individual ego in a Communist Party system, in the final section, grammatical fiction, advance and deepen the plot, the character of the protagonist, and above all, the reader's interest in the story. In short, story and history meet seamlessly in this book. It's for this reason, above all others, that it can never rightly be called an adolescent novel. It's for this reason that, at least I think, Darkness at Noon is a masterpiece. Thank you for listening. Next up on Burning Books is Carol Phillips's The Nature of Blood, a very worthy novel, which is, okay, a backhanded compliment, and a pretty nasty one at that. Ouch. 
Burning Books is part of the Latopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes, subscribe, and reach me there via the email the show button, all by going to latopia.com, spelled the way it sounds, and following the link to Burning Books. I also enjoy getting your tweets, nasty and nice. I'm at Burning Books Pod. My thanks to Hakan Ozgan for the music. There are several ways to thank someone. So let's start with the easiest. Teşekkürler. To Peter Cox, executive producer of the show. Garage. No, I say garage, but I do know people who say garage, actually. And as always, go Jays. This is RJ Ellery, author of The Dark and Broken Hearts, and you are listening to Radio Litopia. Hi, this is Chris Pope, listening to the Gary's Bushel Show, The Hungry and the Hunted. It's my new single from the album Peace of Mind, and it's called Peace of Mind. The Hunted, brought to you by Letopia. Everybody, 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 everybody.